The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Be with us, Lord, throughout this season and all our earthly days, that when the final Easter dawns, we join in heaven's praise. In the name of Jesus, amen. It's our last stanza of our closing hymn this morning. First Sunday in Lent, so we get to sing a mighty fortress. I mean, the, the, the first reading in Lent in the lectionary is always the temptation of Jesus um, in, the, uh, in the wilderness. So you got the 40 days of Jesus fasting and then this overlaying of, uh, this is why the church tradition of our 40-day season of Lent in preparation for Easter. So um, not to talk too much about, about maybe Lent altogether, but you get, you get this, um, the historic tradition of the church has been, as, as we, um, we heard in the Ash Wednesday gospel lesson, the fasting um, and almsgiving and prayer are three practices that many people take on in their own way in the season of Lent. And the idea would be like, a person doesn't eat at a particular time that they normally would, and instead of the money they would have been putting in their, putting toward their lunch, they use it. They use it in alms giving, that is helping the needy, and then during the time they would have been doing that thing, they pray instead. But the general idea behind fasting um, is is replacing something that I would, that I want, some desire that I wanted, and, and resisting that desire. And because it, it exposes within us our fallen condition, the fact that our desires in many, way, in many ways control us. So people might do things like on Wednesday night, and they would normally binge watch Netflix. Um, they take a net, 45 minutes and they come to church. So that's why, that's why the church has midweek services during Lent. It's your fasting, if you will, from whatever you normally would do on Wednesday night, and you increase your, your personal devotional, your devotional life, your personal piety. All this is by way of gift. Jesus did not invent the season of Lent, uh, nor did he give specific instruction of, of the nuances of fasting. We know that fasting is helpful. Jesus even commends it in our, in our reading from Ash Wednesday. Again, he says, when you pray, don't make a big deal about it like the hypocrites. When you give to the needy, don't make a big deal about it. Don't let your righteousness be known to others. Uh, just you can help in secret. And then also he says, when you fast. He doesn't say if. Interesting. He says when. So there's this expectation. Now to be sure, he's talking to people who are already doing it. It was more common in, the, in, that, in, that, um, in their customs, to be sure, than maybe in our own. But the idea would be that my stomach gets hungry and tells me that it's hungry. But that, that wasn't a problem that was built into me at creation. When God built Adam into the ground, he didn't like insert, you're gonna feel hungry so that your body eats. So why does my body tell me that it should eat? What happens if I don't eat? I die eventually. I've been storing up enough to make it a few extra days, right? But eventually I'll die. That, wasn't, that problem wasn't always there, was it? So that the, the hunger pangs that one feels is in a way a result of our sin. Because my hunger is telling me, reminding me that I have to eat and if I don't eat, I'll die. 
From the sweat of your brow, you'll work the ground until you return to the dust from whence you came. That's one of the curses from, from the fall into sin. So uh, that's the season of Lent. Uh, everybody's got di different uh, practices there. And unfortunately, I bring it up because you get so many different teachings and all of us have strong, stalwart Catholic, uh, Roman Catholic family and friends and so forth. And I, I, would, I would argue, um, at least biblically, that when we, tr when we raise fasting or not fasting to the level of sin or somehow gaining favor in God's eyes, we're doing something that the Bible doesn't instruct us to do. It's like if I have a filet mignon on Friday, um, why is that sinful in Lent, but it's not sinful in, in the Easter season? And where in the Bible is that problem found, right? So this is a, a church tradition. And therein, by the way, you see Luther and the continuing Lutheran, Lutheran church's critique of the Roman Catholic faith is that they raise the tradition of the church to the level of Scripture. So they obviously still believe the Bible, but also the tradition of the church, which would include things like making a decree that during Lent you, you have to give up food, give up meat on Fridays. And if you eat a hot dog on Friday, it's, it's not just like breaking your fast, but it's actually it's sinful something for which you have to then ask for forgiveness and repentance and all that. So it's like, wait a second, we're, we're fabricating all these rules and creating new sins and a new like righteousness before God. Um, so that we wanna, we wanna just rid all of that from our thinking. And that, unfortunately that teaching and that common practice, especially in our kind of Roman Catholic um, community, that practice makes Lutherans usually push the other way. It's classic Lutheran response is like, you know what Catholics do? They make the sign of the cross. And I know I'm not Catholic, so I'm not gonna ever make the sign of the cross. It's a total man-made thing, right? The tradition of making the sign of the cross is fine. Luther commends it in the catechism, but, so, but our thinking is clouded because of a particular church body doing something that we disagree with, see? So we wanna, we wanna kind of, to, to clean up our thinking, we wanna say, forget everything that you think about fasting that you've learned from the movies or your friends and whatever, your Roman Catholic background, whatever it is, and look at the scripture in its simplicity and say, why, why is this being commended to me? And why would fasting be helpful? And, and what is fasting? I mean, we all fast. And so we eat breakfast. So you're doing it anyway. And there's no rules or, or that. So just, as you want to think, we want to think through this um, from the perspective of Christian freedom that has us say, okay, why would these things be helpful? So a lot of times people will give up like dessert for Lent. Why? Because it's nice, because you've tried dieting and it never works. So now you're going to try the spiritual motivation. If you had to, maybe if I had a spiritual component, I could burn off a few extra calories. Uh, well, no, that's not really the idea. It's that this, this desire that, that I have for this, for the dieta cinnamon roll, for example, controls me and that exposes my, my human weakness. So even feeling that, that tension of my sinful nature, wanting that thing and then, and then resisting it, that's really the practice. It's this acknowledging my sinful condition. And you break, you break your fast all the time. And, our, and that just shows our failure because it's not 
it's not, it's not winning God's, it's not meriting God's favor. Nor is breaking the fast sinful. It just, the, the desire in itself is it's just make, bringing an awareness to ourselves of our sinful condition. And that is the point of the season of Lent, is it not? This, the idea of repentance, that is being aware of my sin and turning to the one who forgives my sin. Any, is there a hand here? I just had a comment. Um, I work at a school, and my principal is, he is unusual. He is Roman Catholic, and he goes to the lounge during Lent, and he's like, he'll tell you, he'll like say, you shouldn't be eating that, you know, it's Friday. He leaves me alone because he knows that I'm Lutheran. <laughs> so he doesn't say anything, but everybody else, he's like, he'll say something. Yeah. It's, and that's a, that's a problem then too. I think about it. So when Luther, Luther, Jesus, uh, in Matthew six, when he gives the instruction to to fast, pray, and give to the needy, all of that, if you recall the gospel reading, it's within the context of not getting worked up in your righteousness on earth in the eyes of others, but rather be concerned about the treasures that are stored up in heaven. And our righteousness coming from Jesus and not from what other people think about me. So don't be like the Pharisees who are making sure that their good works are seen by others. So you notice how like in that situation to pick on this guy, I don't know, so I can pick on him. Um, so the, this idea of taking what was really commended to be done in secret, secret by Jesus, fasting for myself on my own terms with my own rules, has now then turned to going around and pointing it out to everyone else. And when someone does that, it, it raises them to the level of, it's exactly what the Pharisees were raised to, the ones who go out pointing out those who break the rules. You shouldn't be doing that. So it's ironic. So then now all of a sudden, external works righteousness becomes the thing, which is the very thing that Jesus was railing against. We don't wanna throw the baby out though and say, you know, we don't need to pray. We should never pray. We should never give to the needy. They'll be fine, they'll figure it out. And if they're, and if they're gonna die, if they'd rather die, they better do it and, and decrease the surplus population as Charles Dickens would say, right? Oh no, that's not the idea at all. And so too with fasting, it's not a bad, it's, and that's why Luther and the catechism, fasting, uh, fasting is certainly fine outward training fasting and bodily preparation toward the sacrament. So some people will just, will just not eat on Sunday before receiving communion. Specifically, Jesus never said anything about that. But it's, it's coming from what Jesus is quoting back to the devil in today's gospel lesson. Man does not live by bread alone, but from the word of God. That is Jesus in the flesh. And so feeling that hunger every, I mean, every Sunday morning for some, I mean, everybody is different, right? For, for some, they, they want to have that, that urge. So they're reminding themselves of their need for Jesus. But then you get into intermittent fasting and you do it every day anyway, it doesn't matter. I notice I, I have a predominantly non-millennial Bible study here, so no one got the joke. <laughs> Any other questions or comments about the season of Lent? I didn't mean to go off on that, but I never want to get too far ahead of my handout. So, <laughs> Rich. Maybe this isn't uh, exactly on Lent, but it is on the concept of feeding the devil. And uh, when we had the late theology conference, one of the sort of aha things that I got out of that was, 
feet of the devil. And, that, and he said that as it came out of that text that was our Genesis text today. And, and I can't, so I pulled the Bible out again just to read it one more time while we're looking at that text going, how did he get from there to having children as a defeat of the devil? I mean, it says, uh, I'll put enmity between sure. you and so first, Rich is giving us a, a plug for the Lay Theology Conference, which if you weren't able to attend, those, those are, the video is all available on our church's YouTube page, and the audio is all through the church's resource tab. The audio, you can listen to it or download the podcast, and it is excellent in so many ways. Um, but um, specifically, what he's referring to there is when Adam and Eve fall into sin, the promise is given that the seed of the woman will do what? Crush the devil's head. So the offspring, so that's, this, is the, this is quoted in the New Testament, that the wife will be saved through childbearing. That is, not that her own having a baby is going to be her salvation, but it's through ch- the act of childbearing in humanity is, is where the seed that's going to crush the devil's head is coming from. And that's why when Adam names Eve after the fall... He doesn't name her like way to go, but he names her Eve, which means life, which he should have named her death because it was because of what she did. And he did obviously too. But the idea is it's from her that will come the seed that's going to crush the devil's head. And therefore all childbearing is this ongoing in the Old Testament, all childbearing is this ongoing anticipation of the seed that's going to crush the devil's head and all childbearing sense is an ongoing reminder of that seed that crushed the devil's head. And so what Wolfmuller's point is that the devil hates babies. So when you look at our culture, why is it there's an ongoing resistance, to, and not just in our culture today, but there's always been this resistance against babies, kill, killing them. In the Old Testament, you could sacrifice to Moloch. So remember, you could, you could take your baby to the temple of Moloch and you, the hands were kind of like split like this over the fire and you'd take your baby and put your baby on Moloch's hands and your baby would be burned alive and that would be pleasing to Moloch and you'd be blessed. And you would actually, we think about this, diapers are expensive as are another mouth to feed in the house. So, I mean, it's not like when they, when they sacrificed their baby, money fell out of the heavens like a vending machine, but they had a little extra cash, didn't they? Perhaps. Is that not the same motivation for a, a, a commonly today with abortion? Man, man, I can't afford this. Um, this whole life, my, I had this dream in my head of what life should be, and now I've got this, this unfortunate problem of a, of a baby, which I did nothing to bring upon myself. So then, so that also, and too, you see this, we, go, we, we can now, the, the joys of sexuality removed from the gift of children because of the sexual revolution as well. So now it's the, the, the devil delighting in us being drawn to the sexual act without, its, without any child coming out of it. See, because the devil hates babies. That was, I think it was a, that was a great... Um, I like to claim that discovery for myself, but that was Wolf Mueller's brilliance. So before I forget, a couple of, annou- couple of announcement reminders. 
uh, Linton soup suppers are every week at six o'clock on Wednesdays, followed by Vespers at seven. Service is only like 35 minutes long. So bring your, if you got kids, bring your kids in their onesies, have some soup and then have the service and then drop them off in bed when you get home. Um, it's a relatively quick service. Um, Lenten devotions, I mentioned in the common practice of increased devotional practice during Lent. So we've got higher things, Lenten devotions are in a basket in front of the Welcome Center um, on the little table there. And uh, there's a young confessional Lutheran singles retreat coming up next Saturday. You can find out more information on that at the week at a glance. I think that's the main stuff there. Financial Peace University we're hosting here. The Teskies, where are you? Last song over there. Teskey's hosting, hosting that. Hosting that. Uh, last time we had Financial Peace University here, um, COVID happened halfway through. So if COVID breaks out again, we know who to blame. <laughs> no, but that's a helpful thing. Uh, so you can find out more through the week at a glance there. That's enough. Yes. All right. And say, you have to say that you're with Bethany. They and actually changed it for all the customers now. Just get contributed to the um, fundraiser. So you don't have to even mention that you're from Bethany, but feel free. Yeah. Huh. So there you go. You, you were looking for an excuse for cheese curds on Monday. <laughs> now you, it's for Jesus. Consider the children. <laughs> all right, Luke 17. We did. So if you remember Luke 16, the context kind of wraps up with the rich man and Lazarus, the parable there of the rich man and Lazarus. And Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and the disciples together. And really, it seems to be within the same conversation now in Luke 17. If you got a Bible there, there's a bunch on the table or on the, uh, the bookshelf when you first walk in. Luke 17, uh, with the first chunk here, only the first four verses. And Jesus said to his disciples, what's a disciple, by the way? Yeah, so the followers of Jesus, what makes a disciple? What's the formula? Make disciples of all nations. Baptizing and teaching. So are you a disciple? Yeah. So whenever you run across this in the, in the scripture, when Jesus is talking his, to his disciples, in a way, we can hear him talking to us as a continuation of the disciples of Jesus. We don't want to push that too hard because he's also talking to the disciples in his immediate context. When he sends them out, the, the Greek word changes from, from disciple, methetes, to uh, apostolos. Apostello means to send or to throw. Um, so when he sends the disciples out in the office of apostle, or we would say pastor, as we confess in the creed, I believe in one holy Christian apostolic church. That is in this, the lineage of the apostles, of those who have been sent to fulfill these gift, giving, gift givings that Jesus has given the church. So when he sends out the disciples, they're uniquely apostles. Anyway, that distinction is going to come up. You'll see it in the scripture, sometimes disciples, sometimes apostles, and that's why. He said to his disciples... Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves 
If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. But eight times is right out. No. <laughs> All right. So a lot on, um, on temptations to, or sin and forgiveness here. One, one distinction, I was talking to Pastor Schumacher about this um, in the sacristy before the service. That word you see, temptations to sin, in verse 1. And then at the end of verse 2, one of the causes, one of these little ones, to sin. That's the Greek word scandalizo. So think to, to scandalize. Um, as Jesus or Paul had said that the cross is a scandal. So we have to think through what is, what is a scandal. How is, how is this sin a scandalization? And then in verse 4... And three, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. That's hamartia. That's sin like missed the mark. That is like there's, a, there's an ideal, like a target that we're supposed to be aiming for. And that's normally how we think about sin as this, there's, a, there's, some, there's an ideal to be aiming for and we miss with an archer. We miss, that's the word for like an archer missing the bullseye. And that's that sin. But it's different in the first two verses and the fact that it's a different verb draws our attention to it. At least it draws my attention. Why does it seem, it seem like it should use the same word? The, the words, the temptations to sin, it, it doesn't, the, the Greek, there's not like multiple words there. The Greek says scandalizations, that's it, are sure to come. So all the commentators will talk about this scandalizing as as like temptation to sin in such a way that leads toward unbelief or denial of Jesus. So to make a distinction between sin like transgressing in some way in the commandments, and this would be a kind of a sin that's, that's drawing people away from the Lord. They're sure to come, but woe to, one, to the one through whom they come. He's not talking to everybody. He's talking to his disciples. So he's kind of cautioning us to not be the, sins are going to happen, but you should guard yourself that it's not coming through you. Woe to the one through whom they come. Uh, woe is used rarely out of Jesus's mouth. It calls to mind like, woe to the scribes and Pharisees. He talks about it a couple times. He says, woe to the world for unrepentance and woe to these unrepentant cities. It's always in this like air of judgment. Woe to the one through whom these scandalizations come. It would be better for him if a millstone, better for him than what? So it would be better if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. So there's a, I was looking for a picture on, on your handout. There's a millstone there. The original one I had was like a millstone that was tied around a guy's neck and it was dragging him under the water and a shark was coming to get him. And I showed Mandy and she said, if you put that on a piece of paper and put the handouts out and Annabelle sees it, you're gonna terrorize her for life. <laughs> so then I found a different one with, instead of a guy being sucked underwater, it was, it was Mickey Mouse, <laughs> which is even better. I mean, think about the implications especially now with what Disney's come out straight up saying what they're trying to do in the context of scamming. Obviously, that image was put together for a reason. This, 
the scandalizing effect that's, that's being done. Woe to those. So Mickey Mouse being drugged down by a, it's great. Um, why? So, so, um, we, so better to have a millstone hung around his neck and, and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to be scandalized. But what are, what are, who are these little ones? It's weird because there aren't children. I mean, unless the children ran up and he's just talking, it happened to, it didn't say that though. When the children ran up to Jesus, it pointed it out. There were children coming, parents were bringing their children to Jesus and the disciples were trying to pull them away. And Jesus said, no, 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 let the little children come to me. So there weren't children here. It could have been that, but the fact that it doesn't say little ones, it says these little ones. He's talking to his disciples around the disciples. So some commentators, and I, I, I think I agree with this interpretation, it's, it's the disciple. It's those who are growing in the faith, learning the faith, being led toward unbelief, being scandalized, which also would include, what, little young Christians who are disciples, learning God's word, right? We do, it, doesn't, it doesn't exclude them for sure. So some kind of sin toward unbelief. And... I think maybe at first um, it's easy to think about, I mean, my mind always goes to like the scandals in the church. So like the, the, the terrible abuses, especially regarding pastors or priests that it impact these individual kids who just, their whole lives are just in shambles because there's, there's like sexual abuse and stuff from a pastor. Um, so obviously that's an easy an easy um, a way we can, we can draw a conclusion. But also, the law, whenever we hear the law, the law is, we're always tempted to take up the law and point it at everybody else. Um, and if that's the case, then Jesus only died for everybody else. But when Jesus gives the law, remember, he's also coming after you. So he's also cautioning us and condemning us for our sins that cause others to sin. I mean, just to get, you can maybe reflect on that, listening to when, when someone's speaking ill of others and you rejoice in that, um, the, the, it's popular, popularly called bullying these days, so I don't want to use that word, but the idea of rejoicing in the diminishment of one person's character, because if everyone's rallied around talking bad about this guy, they're not, they're not talking bad about me. It kind of lifts me up. Um, and so, and the fact that we're kind of encouraging that or being complicit in that, that's, that's condemning us here too, encouraging this sin among others. When someone comes to you with their sins and instead of saying, hey, you're right, that's, that's terrible. Um, that's sinful, it's wrong. And here's why Jesus died, praise the Lord. But instead we actually try to help our friends out and give them self-justification. That is, no, that's not so bad. I was talking, I can't remember who I was talking to about this with a confession and absolution, how we want to tell people our sins. We want to get it off our chest, which is every bartender or hairdresser has a long list of things that have been spoken to them because we have this desire to tell somebody our, our sins. And Jesus knows that, so he set up confession so that we, when we are convicted for our sin, we're able to actually get it off and have it forgiven. Uh, 
so our, our sinful flesh should be hearing this with, this with these woes, not just pointing the finger to others, but also don't scandalize the other disciples. Be mindful. Pay attention to yourselves. So right away, verse 3, instead of, while, while we quickly are thinking about all these other people who are sinful, those scandalizing sinners, your, your mind can't even go down that road far enough before Jesus says, pay attention to yourselves. If then he says, if your brother sins, this is, this is flipping from, from scandalized back to hamartia, so uh, misses the target, misses the mark. If your brother sins, trespasses, transgresses, rebuke him, that is to express disapproval or to warn about the wrongness of that. And if he repents, forgive him. All right. What is repentance? What is repentance? So the, the simple, just like crass definition from the Greek and the Hebrew is a turn. Um, but so which actually has us often thinking about repentance as the thing that I do. So like, gee, I was making sure no one's here from our nursing home devotions. I can do my same, my same spiel. Yeah, I'll just do it again. So when Jesus was dying on the cross and he says, it is finished. Then he added, but you still have to repent of all your sins, right? No, yeah, he said it is finished and then he died. There, wasn't no, there was no like fine print there after defining what is finished. Often we take repentance as, and we turn it back into like a work. That's the one thing that makes me somehow qualified to receive the forgiveness of God. So repentance is this turning, but we have to be mindful that, so if it is indeed a turning and I'm, if I'm, I'm turned up facing, I'm leading my life toward this false God over here and the real true living God is over here, which by the way, all the, the commandments are condemning this. What is a false God? Anything I fear, love, and trust in instead of him. So my life is heading in this direction. For me to repent would be to turn away from this. The problem is why, I'm chasing this God because I actually think it's good. Which is actually the same, the same lie of the devil in today's Old Testament lesson, right? He holds up the fruit. This is good. What, I know God said some stuff about it, but God doesn't know what's best for you. He's holding out on you. Listen to me. Don't listen to him. And that's true for all the, our temptations ever since. God's holding out on you. You've got it better. You've got better, better, uh, better ideas. So I'm faced up toward this false God leading my life in this direction. I actually think it's good for me. I've been duped into it. And every time like, you go to eat the fruit and it doesn't actually satisfy, so maybe I just need more. So the law then comes and says, stop it. That's false God. Isn't that's killing you? And that's what turns. You're right. You're right. That's, what am I doing? Turns me back. But I didn't turn on my own. What happened to turn me? I had to hear the, the word of law that shatters the, shatters the heart, right? So that has us thinking about repentance then as a gift, we have to understand repentance as a gift. Which, by the way, 
I know we've talked about this, but in the Old Testament, when, when the, the most famous sinner of the Old Testament, he's actually held up to be a great guy, but he's a terrible dude, David. He's held up as this wonderful guy. He's like, what, uh, Bathsheba, Uriah, dude, what are you doing? So remember when he, he has his affair with Bathsheba and he tries to cover it up and then Uriah wouldn't take the bait, so he had Uriah ki- killed? Then God sends to him a prophet to turn him. So he had, David is faced up to this life of sin. He thinks that he's gotten away with it. He's continuing down this path. He thinks it's good. And he, God sends him the prophet Nathan to say, I mean, the famous, you are the man, not in the good way. He tells him the parable about the guy who had a sheep and another guy had a hundred sheep who's really rich. And the rich guy came over here and took the one sheep from the poor guy and killed that one. And then David says, who is that guy? He needs to die for this. And Nathan says, you're the man. Nathan in Hebrew means gift. Remember, constantly throughout the Bible, people's names are attached to what they're doing, what they're about. Jesus means he saves. Nathan means gift. So he comes to David and gives him only this harshness of law, at least at first, and that itself is a gift that turns David, Lord, have mercy upon me, and he receives the forgiveness of sins. So repentance is this, we say contrition, this feeling of guilt, remorse, recognition of sin. Uh, but so if, 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 it mean, if repentance means stopping my sinful life, then Jesus will forgive me. I mean, think about what you just said. You've, I, once I stopped sinning, then Jesus finally forgave me. Wait a second. So I can't mean that. It means recognizing my sin and turning to the guy who forgives me, the living and true God. And then in my sinful flesh, what do I do immediately? Turn back. What does he do? Brings me back. Hence, this seemingly monotonous, redundant life of church that you have. Pastor, you always talk about sin and the law and the forgiveness of sins. Can we get past that? Sure, when you do, we will. When you stop sinning, we'll stop going through this rhythm. But the, the Lord is the one who gave us the rhythm because we have the problem. We're always chasing after fall. Sheep are wandering. He comes and gets, gets us, brings us back, right? And that's the Christian life. That's the life of the baptized who are daily drowning the old Adam, recognizing that this old Adam is trying to drag me into sin, trying to whisper lies into my ear about how this fruit's gonna actually be satisfying and solve all my problems if I could just have a little bit more. And then he crushes it and turns me back to himself, right? Daily. Um, if your brother sent, so rebuke is... Um, so we, we don't want to get too wrapped up in pointing out all the sins of others because this whole, this whole thing is really a picture of how the Lord is forgiving us because that's getting at this seven times forgiving him. So he comes and rebukes us, but also the law needs to do its job. So um, insofar as we are given vocationally to speak words of rebuke, what you're doing is wrong. It's not, it's not good. I mean, think about your kids. This, this affair has to end or whatever the, whatever the thing is. Um, often parents are certainly given to rebuke their children, but it's never out of hate. It's never out of, and even, even it could be done, it, it's, it's all toward love. Is it not? 
The rebuke is toward the forgiveness and repentance. So like what you're doing is, is wrong. And we all love to be told what we're doing is wrong, don't we? It's like the best news ever. <laughs> and right away we try to self-justify. And no, no, that's not wrong. And here's why. Here's why he deserved it. Oh, the government's always stealing from me anyway. Um, so I, sh- I should maybe fudge on my taxes a little bit or whatever. Whatever the, whatever the thing is we want to come up with. So rebuke is actually saying, no, what you're doing is wrong. And repentance is, ah, you're right. This is terrible. I'm an idiot. And then this, that's forgiveness then. Uh, forgive him. So our sins are the millstones that are cut off of us with these words, I forgive you. We just think about that beautiful picture of being tugged down with a heavy millstone and then these simple words, I forgive you, or your sins are forgiven. Jesus has taken away your sins, chops off the millstone and it goes to sinking and you come up for air. Isn't that great? Like for those of you who ever sinned against someone else and felt like that remorse and guilt and just pain and said, I'm I'm sorry. You're longing to hear, you're longing to have the millstone chopped off. And isn't it the most, the sweetest words ever? Like from your bride? I shouldn't have said that. I'm, I'm, I'm terrible. I'm sorry. And she says, I forgive you. <laughs> Back up for air, right? And that's true for all of our relationships. What powerful words those simple things are. I forgive you. Uh, you are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. If, if he sins against you seven times, but seven times, one time I get it, but seven times, but if it fools you once, shame on you. Fools you twice. Wait, however it goes, you know what I'm saying? But seven times is like, what's ridiculous? And yet, is that not how Jesus forgives us? Now that's an impossible thing for us to do. This is hard for the sinful flesh. And yet it's, it is the duty of the Christian to forgive as abundantly as we have been forgiven. Man, it's hard. And that's why Jesus says, or the apostles right away, the next verse, the apostles say to Jesus, increase our faith. Unfortunately, we always hear these verses out of context. So the disciples said, that's like the start of one of our readings. And I can't remember where it comes up in the, in the pericopes. But it's, the apostles say, Lord, increase our faith in response to Jesus saying, if your brother sins against you seven times, forgive him seven times. And they say, I can't do that. I need more, I need more power to forgive. And of course you do. Faith is a gift. So even, uh, so our ability to forgive others is only a gift of faith. So my ability to forgive others more is only a gift that's given more to me. And faith isn't something that you can kind of like engender within yourself or increase in yourself because you desire it more. But finally, I've been pushed to this point where I want more faith. Now that I want more faith, I can get more faith from God. So that turns it into a wage. I've, I've worked, I've, I've developed this, this nagging sense that I need more faith and I've begged God for faith. I've hit the buttons on the vending machine and now he's going to give me the faith that I've asked for. But you have to, you have to do your part. And that takes faith and takes away from it being a gift. Faith is a gift. So this response to the gift of faith is forgiveness. Now, faith is an interesting thing. Uh, 
Faith, we often think about faith as a muscle. I know I've talked about this before, where I, if I, I want more, I want bigger muscles. So we exercise our faith more and more and we get bigger and bigger faith. But Jesus says it's not about the size of the faith. If you have faith the size of a, the grain of a mustard seed, you could say to a mulberry tree, which is like a sycamore tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea. If you had such power, you'd probably use your powers doing something more practical. But still, if you had tiny faith, you could do these incredibly powerful, tremendous things. It's not about the size of the faith. In the Hebrew mind, the faith is all about the object of the faith. So faith is only as strong as that which it is in. So faith in yourself is faith in a small thing. Faith in the government is faith in a small thing. Faith in whatever it is that you're fear-loving and trusting in more than God is faith in a small thing. So to have our faith strengthened is to have our faith put in the biggest thing. And that's really what we're praying for is to have, to have better faith in God, right? So we think about it as this, I finally have more faith, but it's really just my faith being turned more to the real God and less to myself or these other things. So to have, to have faith in him is to have, to have faith in the strongest of things. And that then connects us to the power of God. So we, can, we have God's ear in our faith and we ask for these wonderful things like, uh, forgive my sins. Give me, give me strength to forgive others. Forgiving sins is a, tremendous, a tremendously great thing, which he equates here to as, as taking a mulberry tree uprooted and planted in the sea. So this is this great thing, forgiving sins. Now, in response to the parable, Lord, increase our faith, he gives this parable of the unworthy servant. And we're gonna get halfway through it and run out of time. But, um, so let me just make this point. Forgiveness is expected of the Christian in the life of faith. It is our duty as those who have been forgiven much, we are to forgive. And then he gives this parable to demonstrate the point. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he comes in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink? It's just, I mean, it sounds harsh, but that's actually the way it goes. It's like you're not, no, you're, you're not like thanked abundantly for doing your job necessarily. And here, that's his point. You've got duties to do. You simply do your duty. Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? No. So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. So what is the duty of the Christian who are, who are unworthy servants, who have been forgiving much? According to our life under, in our flesh, our duty toward our neighbor is to keep the law. It's clear, don't sin against your neighbor. Love your neighbor more than yourself. In our, under the, our life of faith, it's our duty to forgive repeatedly, freely, abundantly, because that's how our brother, Jesus, forgives us. Repeatedly, abundantly, which goes back to, if your brother sins against you, right? Uh, forgive him. Same way here. So Jesus is setting, us, setting before us this, this wonderful duty and then also this remarkable power likened to asking a sycamore tree to be uprooted and put in the sea. 
is a picture of the significance of what we're doing when we, when we say your sins are forgiven. Not just, I mean, certainly it's true, the forgiveness of sins spoken from the office of the ministry in confession and absolution, private or corporate, that's specifically given by God for your comfort so you can hear it from God's mouth. God wants you to hear your sins are forgiven. And the way that he set it up to work is he has his pastor in his church speaking his words to you. John 20, 21, whoever sins you, receive the Holy Spirit, he breathes on them. Whoever sins you forgive, they are forgiven, right? So you know when you hear, and by the way, we cover up the pastors with a bunch of clothes, special church clothes that are interchangeable for us because it's not about the man, it's about the office. I just happen to have a voice box which is necessary for getting the sound out that I forgive you all of your sins, right? But that, that's just for our tremendous comfort and it certainly does forgive sins. But we also wanna keep in mind that we have that same wonderful gift and power to be able to speak forgiveness to one another, to chop off millstones, to remove sycamore trees and place them in the sea, to forgive others, to not hold grudges and hold sins against others. It's like Jesus knew what he, what he was sending these disciples out to do. It's like, don't, don't scandalize others. You're in a high position. People are looking at you. Don't cause others to sin. And people are gonna sin against you. And when they do, forgive them. What if they do it more than once? Keep doing it. Keep forgiving them. Why? Because that's what God does for you. That's your duty. Now, uh, next, we're, we're at time. So uh, next week is a great, it's per perfect stopping point. Um, next week, we'll get to verse 11, which is um, Jesus cleansing the 10 lepers, often heard on Thanksgiving Eve, the Thanksgiving text of the one leper who returns to give thanks. Hopefully we'll wrap up chapter 17. Any uh, lingering questions from all that, in increasing faith in sycamore trees and mustard seeds and all that? Yes. Kevin. Exactly. So, I mean, this is Psalm 23, my cup runneth over. So he fills up, he fills up our, our chalice, so to speak, with, he fills us up with forgiveness so that we would overflow forgiveness to others. If you want to be filled up with hatred and animosity and grudges, what, what spills out of you? But animosity and grudges, Right? So we've, we're here, we're, hope, we're filling up, we're being filled up with the very thing that he wants to spill out of us. But then, you know, you open your mouth because we're also in our sinful flesh in our Christian life. So usually if we're, whenever we're saying things that aren't I forgive you, it increases our chances of saying something that's gonna offend, which then we, can, we have the joy of being able to say, I'm sorry, Right? And then the Christian duty is to say, I forgive you, right? Wonderful gift there. And, and reminder too of our unworthiness for the forgiveness that we receive from the Lord. And that being the thing that we, that strengthens us to forgive others. Any more questions? Very good. We look forward to the rest. Oh, one more.
Mm. That you have that otherwise they, it's, a, it's not obligatory to uh, not they, they do it. It's highly recommended, but it's not obligatory except for those two days. Huh. All right. Cool. Thanks for that. So I'll forget next year and say the same wrong thing again. But it's okay. <laughs> Very good. The Lord be with you.